Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio, and I am your host, Rob Watson. As always, we have an incredible show lined up for you today. Uh, last week, we had a superstar in the music industry and the most recent inductee in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, Belinda Carlisle. This week, we have another superstar. This is in the military ranks, and I don't know that they have a military hall of fame, but um, our guest today would certainly be on track to get into one should they have one. Um, Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram is the second highest ranking transgender military officer who is serving currently today. Um, She has a new book out. It's called With Honor and Integrity, Transgender Troops in Their Own Words. In this book, um, there is, the book kind of takes us around in a, in a couple different directions. Um, one, it gives us a history of transgender people in the military, not only in recent history, but actually going back um, uh, a century or two. And that is actually pretty fascinating. And then um, also an update on what has transpired with our military with the kind of on-again, off-again um, inclusion of transgender troops and what, what that all, what happened to make, make that transpire. Um, but then also the book um, focuses largely on 26 individuals who share their firsthand life experiences in the U.S. military as being trans people. And that is a way that it puts a very personal face on the issue. Um, A lot of the policies that have been uh, put out there for any of us who are close to trans people or or watching or paying attention to the effect um, are pretty ridiculous and pretty pointless. They are basically just prejudice um, with very, very little um, rationale behind them to make them make any sense. In fact, um, uh, Colonel Fram, in in the process of writing the book, surveyed 125 transgender service members in April of 2020 um, just to see what they had accomplished while they were they were banned from the military. They were still serving, but they were banned, not supposed to be there, and just to see what whether they were you know, drags on the military or not, pardon the expression. Um, And in that year, those 125 people had earned 51 medals, 26 performance awards, and 50 promotions. Um, So, you know, it's like here we have top performers being absolutely discriminated against. And um, so with her new book, Colonel, Colonel Fram is, is uh, taking the lid off of it and letting us see what that is all about. So um, she's on deck waiting patiently to come on and, and share her wisdom and experience with us. 
Uh, first, I'm going to go to my illustrious co-host, the editor of the Los Angeles Blade magazine and uh, executive producer of this show, Brody LeVac. Brody, welcome. Good afternoon and good day and good morning and whatever time it is across the globe to all of our listeners. We appreciate uh, you very much. Tell your friends, please subscribe. Uh, and, uh, yeah, download and uh, share our episodes around. We'd, we'd really love you for that. Um, in the world of uh, LGBTQ, uh, the vernacular and terminology sometimes gets a little hairy for journalists uh, and for writers and even sometimes for queer journalists. Uh, so Google decided rather helpfully that they were going to put together, along with Video Out, which is a – LGBTQ plus nonprofit uh, video production company uh, in California in partnership with uh, Men's Health Magazine and the Google News Initiative, a glossary of 100 terms uh, that are applicable to the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah, well, they like left two very important ones out. Uh, Pansexuality doesn't appear in their glossary and neither does bisexuality, which is really bad when you consider the fact that the B is like the third letter in the acronym. Um, I've reached out uh, to Google uh, for a response and commentary, and I haven't heard back. I also reached out to Jordan Reeves, who's the executive director of the Google partner Video Out, uh, who wrote uh, an op-ed column commentary in Men's Health Magazine about the project, and I haven't heard back from him either. However, I find it a little disturbing. Um, actually, no. Let me take that back. I find it really disturbing that, once again, uh, part of our community uh, is being erased. And, it, you know, especially by Google. Uh, you know, they're basing this data on Google Trends. They're using their own data. They're using their own information. And they still manage to erase us. And I'm just seriously irritated with that. Um, I'm working on a piece now for the Los Angeles Blade. It will be later up uh, today, which is uh, Friday, uh, as we are recording this particular podcast. So for those of you listening, it may actually already be there. Uh, it will be at the LosAngelesBlade.com. And then, of course, feel free to register your opinion uh, with the Google News Initiative and video out should you be so inclined. Um, the other major thing that happened, uh, and this, is, this affects the globe, everybody. Uh, the World Health Organization. Well, Brody, before 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 you move on to that, what mm-hmm. what um, that that is a, a pretty odd oversight in both cases, since uh, pansexuality and bisexuality are kind of the defining of the more fluid part of of identity. Um, mm-hmm. Fluid in that you know it's not as as easy to pigeonhole as you know somebody who's absolutely gay or somebody who's absolutely straight. Um, what do you think the is there a motivation behind this? Is there some reason that is falling off the radar? I don't honestly know. Um, it was brought to my attention by another journalist, uh, so I went and I looked at this new online tool. That's what they're calling it. And I went through all 100 definitions, and yeah, bisexuality and pansexuality doesn't exist, just like the race. I think it, again, 
you know, is unconscionable of Google uh, to do that. Uh, you know, you cannot absolutely, especially with our younger generation, Gen Zers in particular, who 100% embrace pansexuality. That is how they view themselves. Right. Bisexuality um, has always been a very problematic thing uh, for years uh, because of the way it's viewed. And I will say this by the hardliners in both the gay and lesbian community, uh, more so than the regular, you know, cisgender community. Uh, but still, you can't erase it. It's part of the acronym. It's just, it's ridiculous. You know, we're not the LGBTQ plus community. We're the LGBTQ plus community. And that's really, you know, problematic on Google's part uh, for doing it. Um, I have, again, reached out to uh, Google, and I've reached out to Mr. Reeves, and uh, I will give our listeners an update uh, once I hear back. But as of now, I haven't heard back from them, uh, so I can't really honestly answer your question. I don't know. I mean, from my perspective as a journalist, um, certainly as the editor of, you know, one of the two only digital and print queer publications in the state of California, you know, 40 million people, I mean, I find it a little disturbing. Actually, I find it very disturbing. So I don't know. It's We'll have to wait and see how this one plays out. Right. Sorry. So, and the next piece is super important. So, so go go for it. Yeah. Then the next piece is really important. Uh, the White House today released a statement. The president, of course, is on Nantucket Island, off Cape Cod, Massachusetts, uh, vacationing for uh, Turkey Day holiday, uh, and uh, he was giving a briefing and a notification by his medical advisors, including his chief medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, about a new variant of the uh, coronavirus. It was first uh, discovered um, on November 24th uh, and fully identified by the World Health Organization. Uh, it's called the Omicron variant. Uh, this this thing's a really nasty bug. Um, it is in the same family as the Delta variant. However, what makes this one unique uh, is its mutation factor is rapid. Uh, the rate of infection and reinfection is incredibly quick, uh, and it's striking younger people, the under, uh, basically the under-30 crowd. We are still waiting for CDC and WHO to give us more data in terms of effectiveness um, of vaccines, obviously, because that's going to be a primary you know, concern. However, the European Union, the United States, and now the U.K. Uh, have basically banned air travel from South Africa and about probably seven or eight other African countries, uh, and that ban may continue to include a lot more. Uh, They're taking this very seriously. Uh, We're expecting a briefing uh, later today or tomorrow from the World Health Organization uh, on this particular bug. Uh, But, uh, yeah, this one's especially nasty one. Uh, Dr. Fauci pointed out, and I think it's also important to point out, that the number one thing that's driving these mutations and that is driving the pandemic still to this day are people who are not getting vaccinated. The unvaccinated are literally driving this thing now. They are in the driver's seat. They're directly responsible for it. Uh, and it's just that simple. You know, the, the protocols that are out there that have been established, the vaccines that we know are already out there uh, are effective 
and and they they are you know able to tamp this thing down. Unfortunately, you still have a massive percentage of people uh, who, for whatever reason, are not vaccinated, whether they refuse or whatever the case is, um, and that is driving these numbers. I should note that according to the data I got from CDC earlier today, um, and this is kind of sad, but it's true, that 100% of all deaths now um, from COVID uh, in the initials are occurring with the unvaccinated. Um, you know, so it, it kills. And folks apparently don't want to believe that. The rates of infection now uh, have trickled down into you know, your, your lower millennials and Gen Zer types. Uh, the Delta variant is extremely serious in and of itself. Uh, but this thing coming out of South Africa, yeah, this was really ugly. So, um, yeah. you know, that's what it is. Um, yeah, so, Brody, in the last piece of information you just gave, though, that 100% of the deaths are unvaccinated, um, I had understood that the um, – COVID infections are going up among people who have, whose vaccines are starting to wear thin who have not been boosted. Um, is, we does that mean that, that those? I don't know. Go I ahead. haven't got the complete data picture on that. I mean, they're, they're, we are now seeing some loss of efficacy among the uh, vaccines that are currently available. There are breakthrough infections, which is what those are referred to as, um, However, I haven't seen any empirical data that says that we have, you know, the death percentage has moved into that yet. It's like from our understanding from what's now, according to CDC, it's 0.0000%. And that also includes severe hospitalization, you know, the whole nine yards. This thing is now going after people that have not been jabbed. So bottom line is – you're not vaccinated, you're really putting yourself at risk for self-erasure. Right. And and while we, we don't know what the effect of the vaccines are on the new variant, but one of the things yep. that that one of the qualities of it is that it is if it, it is not <laughs> people who have had it are as susceptible to get it as if they had not had it um, with this new variant. Mm-hmm. So People who are walking around feeling immune because they had it, this is going to challenge that. Big time. Absolutely. Yeah. This is one of the things that alarmed, you know, the, the World Health Organization, and it was part of the process uh, of the consideration for the president to go ahead and shut down air travel. Okay. Well, that's um, sobering and uh, kind of a little bit nervous news. Um so we'll, I'm sure we will be hearing a lot more of it um, in the coming weeks. But, um, yeah, um, scary, scary times. So with that, um, I do want to switch gears completely um, to um, reflect a kind of a, a bit of scary times for um, some really great people in our country, people who have gone to serve with integrity and then – really yanked around. Um, first of all, they shouldn't be threatened with being thrown out of the military at all, but they've been on this yo-yo of you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. Um, we have a new book out, um, and it is 
by somebody who is incredibly knowledgeable and intimate with the situation. Um, that person is, like I said, the second highest ranking transgender military officer serving today, Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram. The book is With Honor and Integrity, Transgender Troops in Their Own Words. And um, uh, with that, I, I want to welcome to the show, Colonel Fram. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, our, our honor and our pleasure, um, um, certainly. Um, Colonel Frame, I want to ask you, uh, I kind of want to go to one of the points you made in the book, uh, and I think your book speaks to being a byproduct of this, but uh, you observe, uh, quote, ironically, we can look back and say that Trump did us a favor, and this is referring to his ban on transgender um, service members. He's shown a spotlight on transgender military service that was never there before. It was the stories of incredibly dedicated transgender service members that changed the narrative regarding our service, and without President Trump, the nation, national spotlight wouldn't have been on those stories. It's pretty amazing that public and military opinion swung over 30% in trans troops' favor in the last two years after Trump's tweets. That's just astounding. And kind of jumping on the astounding momentum, you published a book with uh, 26 individuals um, who get to stand in that spotlight and tell us who they are. Um, can you give us a little background on that, what, what led you to, to do this? Well, I have to give almost all the credit to my co-editor on this, uh, Mel Emzer Herbert, uh, who is a professor at uh, Hamlin University in, in St. Paul, Minnesota. And Mel had previously done a lot of books on, on gender and, and military issues and, you know, interviewed me at one point for a project they were working on. Uh, and the idea came to them about, you know, how can we tell these stories in a different way, not so much through you know, a sociologist gaze and a look at uh, academically what these stories were about or, or how they might relate. So it was more about how do we tell these stories, how do we find these stories, and even better, let people tell them in their own words that show that there is no one way to be trans. There is no one way to be trans in the military, and that these people are out there serving for all sorts of incredible reasons, just like all their cisgender counterparts, and they're doing so with honor and integrity, like is in our, the title of our book, uh, and really just to show that these are 26 people you might want to sit down and have a meal with or have a drink and just get to know a little bit more about them because they truly are doing incredible things for us. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think one of the things in the past few years that, I know for me, it, I mean, it, did, it had impact on me, but I was already, you know, fully on board and, and um, many, many trans associates and, and understanding. But there was a beer commercial. I think, it was, uh, I think it was Budweiser that was about two people who were, did not have things in common sharing a beer together and getting to know one another, just like you said. And one of the segments was, uh, a, a guy who said he was not for transgender people, unaware that the woman he was becoming very friendly with and, and finding kindred spirit with, who is also a veteran like he was, 
was trans and she comes out to him and, you know, it's like thus this conversation because he obviously related to her, was completely empathetic to who she was, but just didn't have that one piece of information um, about her. Um, uh, yeah, I remember her, that commercial, the fabulous uh, effort yeah. on, on their part. And that speaks to so much of the challenge that we have of getting into those conversations with the people because there usually is something of our humanity that we can connect over, whether that is military service or that's a sports team or some other hobby that we enjoy. But it's piercing that initial bubble and having that conversation that makes that connection. Yeah, and I think one of the things why the commercial was so effective was they they obviously got a connection as as more information was coming out about themselves. But the other thing was the look in their eyes just as they were talking and having that revelation themselves where it was like, wow, I mean, wow, you know, I'm, that you're, you're not my preconceived notion. Yeah, I think that really speaks to the stereotypes that have persisted for so long about trans people in general and in our case specifically for trans people in the military, that trans women in the military are hormonal wrecks who are never going to return fire because they're too busy worrying about their gender identity. Or transgender men in the military are steroidal rage maniacs who are going to get everyone killed because they charged when they should have stayed put. Uh, and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, if we can reset those stereotypes, um, and so often we do that through the power of our story, uh, is really valuable to everyone around us. Um, and I'll share one example of my particular service where shortly after I came out, uh, I started working in a new organization. And about eight months later, I got called into my boss's office because he was retiring in a couple days and he, he wanted to see me. And he said, you broke my stereotype just by showing up and getting the job done every day. And I wanted to think, well, wow, what a low bar that is and what a backhanded compliment right. just showing up and working is. Uh, but I'm glad I had that opportunity to make a change, to make a connection. And these troops that are out there uh, serving here at home and abroad are doing that every day with countless members of their units. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I love that about breaking stereotypes and your point about a low bar. Um, I got that a lot from um, being a gay dad and, and raising um, my two sons from babies and you know, I'd show up at school and I was, you know, a single parent and, um, you know, women would come up to me and it's like, oh, you're such a great dad. Oh, my God, you're such a great dad. And I, went, I brought my kids to school. <laughs> like, that is not a high bar. <laughs> yeah, a, being involved in their parent. lives as a parent, <laughs> yeah. pretty easy one to yeah. step over. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, cha-ching, got that one off. Um Colonel Fram, can you um, can you take us a little bit back on your journey and um, you know both your gender identity, realizing what was going on with you, and your entrance into military service and how those weave together? Uh, sure, I can I can certainly try, and that's a question of you know how long you got because in, anyone's story has, <laughs> has a lot of pieces to it. Uh, but well, we have thirty six minutes. 
I knew I was different from from an early age, but it took a long time for me to put the knowledge in place of self, do that introspection, and, and realize this was truly identity. Uh, but even at, at three and four, I was Wonder Woman along with my sister for Halloween. Uh, through my, my teenage years, I was certainly you know in my mom's things uh, and just trying to figure this all out. Uh, but I graduated college in 2001, and I was looking for civilian jobs in the aerospace industry, and I had done a couple interviews, and nothing was really clicking. Uh, but then the attacks of September 11th occurred. And mm-hmm. for me, that absolutely changed my worldview about wanting to be part of something bigger than myself, wanting to give back for all the freedoms and opportunities that I've been given. And just a couple days after uh, September 11th, I was driving to see uh, my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, who lived a couple hours away at the time. And there was an American flag hanging from the overpass about halfway there. And I just broke down into tears. And by the time I walked into her apartment, I said, I'm joining the Air Force. Because that was the perfect opportunity for me to still utilize the skills and the passion I had about space and engineering, but also to help defend this nation and to give back in a way that was truly meaningful to me. So through all that, gender identity was very much a, a back burner thing. Um, even though I knew something, as I said, was, was different about me, uh, and I knew it was never going away. In fact, I told my wife about being different, being trans, even though I didn't have those words at the time, three weeks after we started dating. Um, So it wasn't until I got into my 30s that it really started to crystallize as identity for me. And I came out as trans publicly and to my unit on the day the ban uh, on transgender service was dropped in 2016. Wow. (laughs) Wow. And what was that day like for you? I mean, apart from that you were revealing yourself, but um, I know for me, I was brushing my teeth and my phone was right there and I saw the the infamous uh, tweet from Donald Trump um, and I couldn't believe it. I, I, I mean, I there's a lot of, of stuff that I knew could happen under him, but I, that was, I was absolutely shocked and appalled. Um, and furious. What what was your reaction? So two different days there, because I came out in 2016 when the ban was dropped okay, for the first so. time and trans people were allowed oh, to serve openly. Yeah. No, that's okay. Those are two hugely important days, and, and I can certainly speak to, to both of them, um, where coming out for that first time, I was serving in the Pentagon uh, at the time, and, and now I'm again, and I thought about listening to the uh, – Secretary of Defense make that announcement, but I thought uh, thought better of it. Instead of going to the room, just watched from my office. Uh, and when he was done speaking, I had a note ready to go uh, to all of my colleagues in the office uh, and a Facebook post to go out to friends and family coming out as trans. So that was a huge day for me. And, and all that nervous energy that I had when he finished speaking, wondering what the reaction was going to be, well, that made me hesitate. Uh, but I did get up the courage to hit send, hit post, uh, and then I did run away. I, I found the gym in the bowels of the Pentagon, uh, buried well beneath it. Uh, I like to say that with all the nervous energy I had, I went nowhere 
faster than I'd ever gone before on the elliptical machine. Uh, again, wondering, oh, what's it going to be like when I get back to the office? And when I did, it was incredible because one by one, my colleagues walked over to me, shook my hand, and said, it's an honor to serve with you. I was Lord, uh, because it was truly my honor to serve with them. And to get such an incredible reaction um, was incredible. Now, I, I understand I have a lot of privilege in that reaction uh, based on the color of my skin, uh, based on being a senior officer, uh, working in a nerdy career field in the Air Force, and having a long track record of performance where I might mm -hmm. not have the same reaction as a young Latino or African-American in the infantry, in the Army or the Marines. But overall, my experience was fairly typical in that more often than mm -hmm. not, people came out to that welcoming reception because they were valued contributors to the mission that each of their teams had. Um, so truly an incredible day, even though my wife lost friends and family that day for me coming out, wow. which, which was heartbreaking to see you know, people throwing away the relationship they had with her or her parents not speaking with her for a year solely because of who she loved. So uh, wow. a great positive day, but heartbreaking moments that have stuck with us until today. Uh, and then, as, as you mentioned, flash forward 13 months, right. and we get President Trump tweeting that transgender people were a burden on the military and were a disruption that could not be tolerated in any way. Wow, talk about going from this euphoria to, oh my God, what just happened? How did we get here in 13 months, even with all the service chiefs testifying that trans troops are no issue? Um, so to try and navigate that day was completely different because then it became about, well, not only what do we do as individuals, but what do I as you know, in a leadership role in an advocacy organization, in a peer support network, uh, which is a group called SPARTA, how do we protect our members? How do we reassure mm -hmm. them? How do we tell them how to fight this? And that was a crazy scrambling day that began, you know, the media frenzy and spotlight that was on us that ended up doing a lot of good. But we had to tell our folks, hey, you know what you need to do? You need to lace up your boots go to work, and keep accomplishing the mission until you're dragged kicking and screaming from the service you love. I'd like to interject yeah, something right here, um, if you don't mind. Yeah. Rob, Colonel, as always, it's good to talk to you, ma'am. Uh, welcome to our show. Um, my best to you and your spouse. Uh, what Colonel Pram has just outlined uh, is something that a few of us uh, became immediately aware of uh, prior to the tweet. For our listeners, uh, there's a little bit of background to what happened to the colonel and the other trans members uh, of the services co uh, community. Um, every year, the American military and defense uh, establishment has its own budget that has to be passed by Congress. Um, and what had happened was uh, a group of right-wing, radical, evangelical-oriented members of the U.S. House tried to attach a writer to that piece of legislation that effectively would have thrown the colonel and all the trans-military types out of the service. Uh, it was sponsored uh, by Representative Vicki Hartzler of Missouri. It was known as the Hartzler Amendment. 
it didn't get through the House Armed Services Committee. So Hartzler decided to do an end run with uh, uh, about three or four of her more radical House colleagues, and they went to then-House Speaker Paul Ryan uh, to bring it to a floor vote. Uh, The Speaker allowed that. Um, However, it was defeated by only six votes, and that happened as a direct result of a lot of work behind the scenes by trans activists and allies. Unhappy with that outcome, Hartzler and her group went to Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council, who is an avowed enemy of the LGBTQI community. They also dragged in a gentleman by the name of Ryan Anderson uh, from the Heritage Foundation. They went uh, to Mark Meadows, who was then head of the uh, caucus, uh, with the Freedom uh, Caucus. They, in turn, went to Ryan. Ryan said, no, you had your chance. You were voted down. That's the end of it. Unsatisfied with that, Meadows, who was friends with Vice President Mike Pence, made an appointment. He and these Congress representatives, congressmen and women and men, went over. They had a meeting with Pence. The very next day came the tweet from Trump. So we've pretty much established that it was the meeting with Pence, Pence saying something to Trump, Trump pandering to them. And then we also discovered later on that Tony Perkins was in the Oval Office when that tweet went out. I need to add that the Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, okay, was out of town when it happened and did not know. But what happened to Colonel Fram and the rest of the transgender military types happened as a direct result of the hatred animus of the Christian right in this country. And they went and they did their level best, okay, to erase transgender military service. Fortunately, a lot of good people, Colonel Fram included, okay, they fought them, they won, okay, and they now serve with honor. It's no small bit of irony for me as a journalist that Colonel Fram transferred from the United States Air Force to the United States Space Force, which was created by Donald Trump. So for me, that's sweet revenge. And with that, I'll hand it back to you. Uh, I'll hand it back to you, Rob. Colonel, again, it's so good to talk to you. Thanks, Brody. Well, well, Colonel Fram, congratulations on making Brody happy with it that you, you gave it to Donald Trump. So, touche. Um, I, I do want to ask you, though, um, dovetailing off Brody's point about the the political faction in the country that has not only history but is in current mode of attacking transgender people in our society, of which you were part of their first target. Um, And this is not particularly uh, apropos to your book, but um, what is your commentary about the things that they are trying to do now to trans youth in terms of especially getting involved in trans youth health care, preventing them from any kind of, of um, puberty blockers, um, et cetera. What would that kind of health care meant for you had that been available as you were growing up? So I, it's hard to say what that would have meant for me as, as I didn't get to the point where that was something I would have accessed as a, as a teen. But maybe if I was growing up today, I would. So anytime we talk about you know, denying medically necessary care, that's worrisome 
to me. Um, and it's an issue we have, you know, in the service of, you know, we don't have the choice of where we're going to live. So if someone has a transgender child or dependent uh, and gets assigned somewhere where state laws or local ordinances prohibit medical care or the ability to compete in sports, you know, that's really damaging to a family mm-hmm. and to a military family that is signed up to, you know, go wherever their country calls. So when we have this patchwork of unequal rights and discrimination, uh, that's a challenge not just in those localities, but it's an issue for all of us. No, absolutely. And uh, the, the attack on transgender service members is ironic because, I mean, first of all, to Brody's point, the, the, the machinations that, that happen behind the scenes and the political factions and the complete lack of principle behind their behavior there is also reflective in that they are not respecting the principles of the military um, or personal integrity principles. And I, I want to read a quote from your book. Um, for the transgender individuals in this book who had to conceal their identity for some or all of their time in service, Consider how they had to balance the service's professed values of honor and integrity against who they were. Think about how much they were willing to value selfless service and devotion to duty over who they were as individuals. Um, can you speak to us about military principles and what, what are the military principles that you are supposed to be adhering to and how does that dovetail to your identity? Well, I think the biggest one speaking to with that quote is that integrity of, you know, being honest and not just honest, you know, to yourself, but honest all all around in all aspects of your life. And what we learned about the damaging effects of protecting identity as we went through the years of don't ask, don't tell applied equally to trans folks. Um, And we saw so many instances uh, through both LGB service members and trans service members, where it wasn't a disruption for that person to be themselves. It was, in fact, the hiding of identities and the issues that arise from that that are truly a disruption to, to units and unit cohesion. So we absolutely need our service members to be, have that integrity, uh, that, that we need to do the right thing even when no one is looking. And a big piece of that is with themselves. And it translates to performance because when you have to spend mental energy on protecting your identity, that's energy that could otherwise be spent on the mission. And I like to say that you could be good, you could even be great at what you do. But when you have that filter in your brain that has to sit in between your thoughts and either your words or your actions, it slows you down. So that when we can remove that filter, we do unlock people's potential, take away that need to protect their identity. They're not only going to be their best selves, but they're going to be adding a whole lot more value to their unit and to mission accomplishment. Right. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit because one of the really fascinating things that is touched on briefly in the book is the history of kind of the transgender experience 
going way back, um, where especially in the case of many women um, who were presenting as women um, or who were thought to be women, um, were joined the military as men. And some of them, when they weren't in the military, did go back to presenting as women, so they were doing it more as an expedience than, than because they were truly trans. But um, can you give us an overview of that and your thoughts about it? Yeah, I think it's interesting to go back and look at trans service through history, and, and you can find examples, even though the language may not have been there, uh, at the time. And yes, there, there certainly are examples, as you mentioned, where people serve for expediency. Uh, but one of the great examples I think that's out there that we, we touch on briefly in the book is that of Albert Cashier, uh, who was a Civil War soldier from the Illinois National Guard, uh, fought in a huge number of battles, was captured as a prisoner of war, escaped, made it back to his unit, continued to fight, and after the war, continued to live as a man, was discovered in his old age, um, but still respected for who he was and buried with full military honors in his uniform, uh, I want to say in 1915 or 16. Uh, and he was just one example of the trans folks that fought in the Civil War. Um, we have examples going back to the Revolution and the founding of this country. But there are so many more that we can be sure were out there, but history simply doesn't record either because we don't have the language or because they were very successful at protecting their identity. And it shows, again, how, how, back, how far back we can go and talk about how good trans people are at protecting their privacy uh, and how crazy some of the arguments have been about us being a disruption or a challenge because we're going to be the best keepers of our privacy and are going to find those solutions to make sure that we aren't a disruption to unit cohesion because we're right. there for the right reasons. Yeah, and to, to your point, the, um, and this is from your book, the American Battlefield Trust states there are over 400 documented cases of women disguising themselves as men and fighting as soldiers on both sides of the Civil War. That's, that is not a small number especially to your point that that isn't likely to even be all of them. I mean, the, because oh, there are many, many more not. that were undocumented. So, um, yeah, yeah it's... it's I, an, a, another fascinating statistic is simply the rate at which trans people serve and that the Department of Veterans Affairs' da own data shows that trans people have served at twice the rate of their cisgender counterparts. So it's incredible to think that we have hundreds of thousands of transgender veterans out there. So I want to go to the stories um, themselves. Um, how did you locate these 26 individuals? How did you, and, and they're broken up into sections of, of their experience. Um, can you go into the storytelling aspect and process um, that you went through? Yeah, through one, of, one of the most important things we wanted to capture was the breadth of military experience. So while we have a handful of veterans that are contributors to the book. Most of it was active service because that's what we kind of focused on now. Uh, but we cover going back to the Vietnam era all the way through people that are still serving. We have officers and enlisted um, all through the ranks, just about every different type of career field that is out there in the military. So a great breadth and different types of stories as well within that. 
because we did ask people, tell your story. Tell what you think is poignant, is funny, is sad, is interesting, but tell your story. And we captured it primarily through word-of-mouth advertising, friends-of-friends type things, and the network that Sparta has built of transgender service members. So now we have almost 1,350 trans service members uh, within uh, a Facebook group that we can publicize things like this to. Uh, but at the time, I would say that was probably in the five to 700 range. So tapping into that network, tapping into the people that I knew, because uh, that was a big portion of you know, my work on this, is finding those people as a member of the community myself. So it was, who wants to tell your story? Who has something you really want to get out there? Um, and because it's so valuable as that way to connect. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you have, um, in the book, you define uh, an estimate that there are 15,000 serving um, transgender people in, in the military now. Um, I did want to ask you about the um, kind of the military's view on gender itself and how is it, what is its outlook on um, non-binary? Um, that is something that, that we as a society in general are starting to learn about. And I think the younger generation is calling us on it because, you know, as we, in my opinion, we're kind of lost in the weeds of the, the fights that we fought for equality that we were kind of living within a binary system and people who are growing up that weren't as distracted by that oppression were kind of going, Hey, there's something else here. It's, and, and to Brody's point in the beginning of the show about, you know, um, bisexuality and pansexuality, which are again, part of the non-binary kind of concept are possibly too, too, out there for establishment to grasp. How is the military dealing with that? So there's a lot to cover there, but non-binary service truly is kind of the next frontier. Um, as we make an effort to both attract and retain all the best that this country has to offer that are willing to serve, and we definitely need to do that with non-binary service members. And for Sparta, for myself, for, for transgender service members, we absolutely think this is important and it's an imperative for us because of that military ethos to leave no one behind. When Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed and trans service members were left out, it was incredible allies from the LGBT or LGB community who could put a face on things and who could lead while transgender service members had to stay in the shadows that helped in a significant way to make trans service a reality. So we want to do the same and extend that to non-binary service. There have been some great recent developments uh, with the State Department issuing that first ex-passport. Uh, Canada just announced basically a non-binary uniform policy where any service member can wear any piece of attire. So imagine that you have six different tops and six different bottoms in this uniform. There's no longer a gender associated with that. Um, and that's something that I could see coming down the road for our military. 
And it's definitely one of the things we're going to look at. Uh, there are great groups looking at this within the Department of Defense. Uh, for example, the uh, Department of the Air Force has now a LGBTQ initiative team, which is a barrier analysis working group. And that's one of the things we're looking at. What do we have to do to enable uh, non-binary service in a good way? But you also brought yeah. up the point of you know, the military being very gendered. Uh, and that's going to be a challenge, though. We do have this tradition of being uh, traditional in a way or hidebound even. We're also a young person's organization, and the vast majority of military members are under 30. So how do we reconcile those two as we keep some of the traditions and some of the values that the military holds, but make sure we're incorporating where society is going and folks like and folks that are non-binary are valuable pieces that we need to attract and retain. Yeah, no, it, it's super, super important. And I think you brought it, you know, alluded to it a little bit at the top of the show when you were talking about how um, each individual is different. And there's not just like one story. It's, you know, everybody has their own story. Um, I've always held that to be true in just thinking about our own individual creation. I mean, here we are, we're created from sources from two beings, um, and DNA material is locked in one being, and a thousand different possibilities are heading towards it from the other being. One of those actually gets through to create the, the DNA map of each individual person, and when we come out, we're kind of like the lottery winner of the potential things we could have been. And when we come out, we have fingerprints that match no one else in the whole world. We have a DNA makeup that matches no one else in the whole world. And yet we're thrown into these binary situations where we have to be one or the other of this or that and that type of thing. Um, in the book, you allude to a, a gender viewpoint um, that talks about how gender isn't something you are, but is something you do. Can you elaborate um, on that and how that affects the transgender identity? So I think what, what we're getting at there is the difference between gender identity and gender expression, uh, and they can be different of who you are and how you express yourself in certain ways. Can be more masculine, can be more feminine. Um, or any infinite possibility in between, and that extends both for what's your identity and what's your expression of gender, because gender is a very societal construct um, that we mm -hmm. place on one another. You know, what colors are for what genders? What toys? You know, is that fire truck a girl's toy or a boy's toy? And those are societal expectations. The fact that we place a gender on clothing, you know, strips of cloth, whether you, you know, make it into what we would consider a skirt or pants, how does that give it a gender? So it's a societal expectation as much as it is anything that's internal. No, absolutely. I wrote an article on that about my boys and uh, how toys and toy aisles were genderized and the history of pink and blue, which were was mm -hmm. a completely arbitrary choice. It was like pink, in fact, originally was meant to be a masculine cover cause, color because it was from the reddish and fiery and all that. And 
Um, so it was completely arbitrary that it was selected to be feminine. You know, it's um, but it, but it is very very odd uh, of that. Um, what now that that you know President Biden is in office and um, you know we're nervous about the midterms and probably nervous about the next presidential election since Donald Trump hasn't gone away and those who think like him are the other choices, um, if you will. Um, what is the fear within the transgender ranks that, you know, another ban could, could yet come up in a few years? Yeah, that still hangs over us. And that is this psychological burden because it takes nothing more than executive order to flip the switch on transgender service. So one of the big policy goals that we have is to get something into law that basically codifies the opportunity, again, opportunity, not a right, but an opportunity to serve regardless of gender identity. Um, And that would be something that would be much more challenging. Again, not impossible. Laws can change, but takes a different level of effort to try and change. Can't be done with the stroke of a pen. Uh, So that is a big goal to remove this burden that transgender people still feel of, Will I have a job in three years or seven years or whenever that may be um, if a different administration with a different viewpoint comes in? Similar to what what happened when the ban went into place uh, in, in 2017, that you just had this feeling that the executioner's axe was still out there. How do we deal with that? How do we persevere? And what it speaks to, I think, is the resilience of our trans service members. The fact that we made it through that time period um, is incredible, but we need to get something in place that can give a little bit more assurance to these people that just want to serve their country and are fully capable and qualified of doing so. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, One of the things that, and, you know, it was pretty much a red herring, but I'd love for you to answer it anyway, um, was, quote-unquote, concern over health care for transgender personnel. Um, what, it, what are the realities of transgender health care needs in the military? So I think the reality of transgender health care in the military is that it is the same as all other health care in the military. The Department of Defense has a compact with service members that we're going to take all medically necessary steps to get you to be your best on the battlefield. And that is exactly what we're doing with transgender troops. When they have medical needs that are deemed necessary by their doctors, those needs are taken care of. And interestingly, when the department studied this back in 2015, uh, they released a report that, that estimated the cost of transgender health care. And when they finally got data in that first year that it was available, it was a third of the cost. So you could even say that transgender troops are one of those rare Pentagon projects that came in on time and under budget. <laughs> That's perfect. Efficient and well done. Excellent. Well, we are down uh, actually less than our last five minutes. Um, and, and I want to open it up to Brody because he may have some questions as well. What haven't we talked about that, that we should be talking about? 
I think you've, you've covered all the major issues. The fact that people are out there serving today here at home around the world doing incredible things are completely qualified but still face challenges to their service. We still need to improve policy. We need to remove that, that threat that is out there that we could flip the switch again in a future administration. And whatever we can do for them now while serving to make sure that the administrative burden is reduced, that they don't always have to be the ultimate educators uh, to basically get that knowledge out there, to share these stories that trans troops exist, they're doing great things, and they're going to continue to do great things uh, for as long as there is a United States military. Excellent. And, um, uh, Colonel Fram, I want to thank you. First of all, I want to thank you for your service. Um, my dad was also a colonel in um, the Marine Corps, um, and so I come from a military family background, and I understand the sacrifice and threat that, that you've taken on our behalf. And so very sincerely, thank you for that alone. Thank you for your bravery in being who you are and standing up for our transgender population. Um, is that, that also is, is a huge, huge thing in itself. Um, where can people get the book? So you can get the book anywhere books are sold. Uh, would love for folks to go to their local bookseller and ask for it, uh, but you can find it on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble. Uh, we have a website at withhonorbook.com that will link to places to buy it uh, or get it straight from the publisher, NYU Press. So find it just Excellent. about anywhere. Yes, find it. And um, great Christmas gift, by the way, FYI. Um, just a little suggestion there. Uh, Brody, any final words from you? I just want to thank you for your service, uh, Colonel Fram. As always, it's good to speak with you, ma'am, and I wish you continuing success. Uh, And eventually, I would dearly love to see a couple of stars on your collar. (laughs) Well, you know, there's not all that many uh, generals in the Space Force, so uh, a lot of hurdles to get there, too, and a lot of luck, but we'll see what happens. And, and Rob, Brody, it's, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, the pleasure is ours, and yes, we're 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 gunning for your stars, and excited to see what what comes next for you. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an honor, and very enlightening, and and really really wonderful um, job on this. Um, Brody, thank you for your work both uh, here and at the LA Blade, um, and getting that publication out in um, print in Los Angeles as well as online. So anybody listening, you can check out the LosAngelesBlade.com, and get the latest, most well-written LGBTQ stories you want to find in the press. Um, And for our listeners, thank you for tuning in again. Please come back again next week. We will have an absolutely fantastic You Cannot Miss It show. I have absolutely no idea what it is, but I can guarantee you it will live up to all those adjectives. So for me and the rest of the rated LGBT radio team, Thank you so much. Tell your friends to subscribe, and we will talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.